I can't believe we're freaking talking about satellite again. This is episode 271 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. What do the FCC, Satellite Internet Access, Mobile Broadband, Madison, Wisconsin, and Utility Poles in Louisville, Kentucky have in common? They're all in the recent Community Broadband News, and they're all in this week's podcast. In this episode, research associate Hannah Trossel boots Christopher from the host chair to interview him about some significant recent developments. For more details on these and other topics, check out the appropriate tags on muninetworks.org. Now here's Hannah and Christopher. Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is your host this week, Hannah Trossel. Joining me is the normal host, Christopher Mitchell. I don't know how normal I am, but thank you for having me on my show. No, we're going to kick you off, and I'm only going to do the podcast from now on. I can't say I don't deserve it. Well, you've been gone quite a bit. Where have you been? I've, I've been traveling around. Um, most recently, I was just out in Seattle for the NATOA conference, the National Association of Telecommunications Officers and Advisors, which is a, a group that does a lot of great work in this area. Um, but... I was just in town very briefly. Uh, I didn't get this. I didn't get to enjoy the whole experience. And then I was off to Western Massachusetts, where the Berkshire Eagle, which really does some of the best local reporting on broadband anywhere in the country, uh, they had an event in Western Massachusetts in um, the Berkshires, uh, in Pittsfield in particular, and had an evening event with uh, me and several other people from the area that are making important investments and talking about broadband. So it was pretty great. What kind of investments? Well, in this case, they're trying to figure out how to bring fiber to everyone. And that kind of that brings up um, the point that I wanted to make before we move on to some other pressing matters that we'll, we'll talk about, depending on the host discretion. Um, but um, we talked a lot about fiber. And in a setting like that, um, Western Massachusetts is quite rural, something that, that Hannah, I know you're familiar with. And there's an expectation that in, in these areas that, that fiber is, is nice. It'd be nice to have. It's like a luxury, but that you cannot afford to build it. And one of the questions that we got from the audience um, was whether or not compression uh, of data would be enough that we wouldn't have to need fiber to uh, have high quality connections. If just applications could be smarter, we wouldn't have to build fiber in rural America. And, and I really went on um, a, a tangent a couple of times about how the reason that I support building fiber in rural America is not just for the um, high bandwidth applications, which certainly it can handle better than any other technology, but because I, I desperately hope that rural America is still around and, and actually is doing much better in three, four decades. And if you want to bring internet access to a, a, any place, really, but rural America especially, um, then, and you want to figure out how the, the lowest cost way to do that over many decades, it actually turns out that fiber is that way. And you know, I'm not able to dig into the accounting. I'm not able to dig into the technology in the way that many, many others are. But I, I can talk to many people from the public, the private, who are building wireless and wired networks. And every one of them tells me that, yes, over 30 years, that fiber is almost always uh, way less expensive than wireless because um, it's very costly up front. But then there's um, all the operational savings that you get and the lack of, of, of upgrades that you need. There's, there's several pieces in the network that you do have to upgrade over the years. But when it comes down to it, 
uh, wireless is very expensive over many, many years because you have to re replace the whole network many times. And when things go wrong, you often have to send a crew out to fix it. So anyway, I just went on this, this tear about why, you know, if you're just worried about being financially responsible and you know that you're going to need a network for many decades, then fiber is the smartest choice, not the luxury choice. Well, that's certainly one way to bring broadband to everyone. I think the FCC has a different way of doing that. They do, but if you'll let me let me hang out there for a second. Let me just ask you something. Like just just drop the the focus on telecom right now. Okay. And think about computers in general. What is one of the biggest problems that people have with their computers today? It's just so slow. Well, no, even, even just ignoring the broadband, um, I've certainly like, you know, for many oh, people, obviously, the computer, it's software itself. Okay, so so one of the issues with that is sometimes spyware or um, or the um, or um, Trojan horses. I'm starting to think of malware, malware in general, Russian hackers taking over your computer. Um, all of those things, including the speed of the software that you're noting, I think could be dealt with in the near future. And, and this is something that someone else brought up, which was was someone was saying. Uh, a select board member from a nearby community was saying, oh, well, up, higher upload speeds would be nice, but you know, most people don't really do much with that. And I, I would respond. I didn't have a chance then because we're talking about so many different things, but I would say it. Well, most people don't have the opportunity to. But if you want to deal with, with security challenges, with people's slow computers and things like that, when you have a high-quality, low-latency network, we're going to go back, and I fully believe that we'll be doing this. We'll be going back to a, a client mainframe kind of um, approach like we had back in the 80s where people have very basic computers on their desktop, very fast connections so that as they type, they won't know that their signal is traveling you know, 10, 20 miles to the local cloud. Uh, but that's where the application will be. It'll be more secure, where professionals can secure it. And in general, our computers will be easier to use. I'm certainly not going to make any prediction that this will be cheaper because you know, these things often tend to end up being a little bit more costly for anyone who used to buy Photoshop but now buys Adobe like monthly plans is well aware. Uh, but I think it will be more secure and generally easier to use because our computers will be less complex. We'll have less things on them. We'll have more things in that cloud. But we need low latency, high quality symmetrical networks to get there. And so it's another reason that um, people talk about bandwidth and speeds, but but I really think the future is low latency. And one of the ways that we'll see that is in applications not being local, but they'll run faster because they're on much bigger computers in the cloud. Will that hold true for my cell phone as well? My terrible eight gigabyte cell phone. When uh, we're paying $1,200 for a cell phone, I, I certainly hope that it, it will be. I'm, I'm frankly horrified like I think you are about the escalating costs of these little devices. Yes, most certainly. Which... Somewhat leads us to our next discussion. The FCC's version of getting broadband to everyone, it's possibly just changing the definition. Well, I would say largely. I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, if you, if you ask um, Chairman Pai, he'll tell you that his number one issue, the, the thing that he cares more about than anything, the thing that leaves him unable to sleep at night is how to get broadband out to rural America. Uh, it turns out he actually means really worse broadband out to rural America, unfortunately. Um, yeah, what you're talking about is something that I did not think the FCC would actually do. I mean, I I think like you, I think we both expected that they would contemplate it, but we didn't think that they would actually have 
you know, the chutzpah to, to go out there and say, no, broadband is really not as good as it's been. Actually, it's better if we have much slower broadband. But they don't have the courage to just say that outright. But it looks like, um, and we're going to be commenting on that this week, the FCC has an open proceeding um, to discuss this, but it is claiming that for areas, rural areas that do not have 25 megabits down and 3 megabits up, it might be okay if at least you have 10 megabits down and 1 megabit up of mobile broadband access. That's by my cell phone. By your cell phone. Let me ask you, Hannah, you have a much longer history in rural America than, than I do, than probably most of our listeners do. Um, how is that mobile coverage out there in terms of relying on that as uh, your internet source? Well, it definitely varies by phone. As my friend's phone kept picking up LTE, and mine was no service or sometimes 3G. We also had quite a bit of fun trying to tether my phone so that I could answer Chris's emails while I was on vacation. Let's just be clear about this. Um, I did not ask you to do that. I greatly appreciated it. I, in fact, encouraged you not to do that. But I, I, I cannot deny your dedication to um, getting the job done. It was mostly hilarious. <laughs> so, so what are some of the challenges for using your, your phone um, as your dedicated uh, broadband source? If I hadn't had my computer there, typing on it is not very fun. I have written papers on it before. I do not recommend it. They are very, very short, like 200 word pieces. And there are a lot of typos because it's a <laughs> cell phone that you can't really see. Sure, but if you turn it into a hotspot, does that make it all the problems go away? No, it makes different problems. I somehow, in about half an hour, ended up using about 200 megabytes, doing nothing but typing on my computer and answering Facebook. Yeah, it's that's one of the things that I think people don't realize is how much, when you're on a fixed connection, you're not really paying attention, people don't notice how much goes by. I mean, uh, my wife and I, we don't even watch since we had Jackson. We don't even have that many um, that many hours streaming video, but we're still using um, 400 gigabytes per month. And I think a lot of that is just like heck, I mean, even just scrolling through Instagram on my phone. People, I mean, you know, loading image after image. Um, if people are on Facebook scrolling down the feed, you're pulling in so much more content than you realize, and that's all. It's all going somewhere. And if you're on a data cap, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and if you're paying by the gigabyte like I am, it is not super fun. So let's talk about this in terms of the coverage, because if if we look at where you grew up in um, in either northern or central Minnesota, depending on who's North describing, Central, North Central Minnesota, um, what is the mobile coverage like? I mean, you know, is this the kind of thing where everyone in the census blocks is likely to have this similar level of service? No, it also varies if. For a while, if you had a tin roof, you could not get any cell service in your house. Um, that was rather fun when visiting friends. The cell service is mostly Verizon. There was drama in my town where apparently T-Mobile and AT&T had a fight over a cell tower, and then neither T-Mobile nor AT&T customers had service for two months. Yeah, this, this seems like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, it's pretty cool if you have cell service in that situation. But it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you should be relying on if you are, say, the regulator of the most advanced economy in the world. It is not a reliable way to get Internet service. And, you know, this is something that, that we talked about with John Chambers just recently on, on this show is these are this is carrier of last resort that we're often talking about. It's, it's not a game. You know, I don't feel like like. 
it's not like Pi should be thinking of this as like, oh, I'm going to have this great achievement by redefining broadband and therefore claiming that I brought service to rural America. I don't think people are going to be super excited just because the FCC tells them that suddenly they have broadband. No, people won't be. I mean, I was just outside the Bay Area um, a few weeks ago, and I lost cell service right before I was supposed to have dinner with my sister. And we ran around on top of basically a small hillside looking for cell service before we got in the car and started driving, where I only found cell service right before a tunnel. It's amazing what the cell companies have done, what the engineers have done, and everything else. But the idea that that we should just blithely just go about saying, oh, well, because many people have access to phones that seem to work most of the time, let's just define that as good enough and move on. Or even worse, frankly, um, you know, for the FCC to think about spending a lot of money on on exploring uh, expanding that technology rather than technologies that would serve as a carrier of last resort where everyone could have access where your your service would not depend on the weather or the activities of those around you i mean up near where my wife's parents live um a little bit north and west of of your family i believe they have this thing called moon dance oh yes moon dance jam Moondance Jam. And and I really wonder how the cell service changes for some of those local folks when you get that, that one weekend or, you know, then you also have the moon dance with the country music. So you've got a few weekends or, or weeks during the year where you just saturate those cells. And, and again, those technologies aren't made uh, for that. I don't know if they roll in an extra um, antenna or two for the moon dance. I don't believe they do. <laughs> so it's it's really disconcerting that the regular would do this. And I am shocked that we don't see more outrage from Republicans who are representing these areas. I mean, this is a Republican FCC that seems intent on basically saying only Democratic strongholds, the major cities, should have high quality broadband. And the areas of the country that vote most Republican, most reliably, should just be left behind with either satellite or mobile broadband or whatever. But we don't really care about them. It's it's shocking that Republicans in the Senate would let the, the Federal Communications Commission get away with even thinking about that, let alone getting to the point where we're, we're submitting comments on it. We haven't really picked on satellite yet. No, no, um, I don't think we have <laughs> to some extent. I have to wonder if anyone listening to this show needs us to. I mean, you and I have been working on this a lot lately because all of a sudden I think you know, we had a similar realization, which was, oh, my God, we have to talk about how satellite is not good enough again. I thought we left this behind. But haven't you heard about that really new satellite that provides 25 by 3 over all of Iowa? Yes, and uh, this was one of the one of the things that, that Hannah you found that it was just amazing is that um, according to the FCC's maps, everyone in Iowa has broadband access now. So what's the problem with that, Hannah? The main problem with that is there are a lot of places in Iowa that do not have decent internet service, and if you say that everyone has access, it co- becomes a lot harder to prove that there are areas of need. It makes it a lot harder to actually build infrastructure to the right areas. Yes, I, I just I so second that the way you phrased it is exactly right because what inevitably happens then is that people who actually live in Iowa are like, Wow, this is really frustrating. We can't get good service. And then maybe a newspaper reporter looks into it and they say, The FCC says everyone in Iowa has awesome service, but these people say that they don't. And then it comes it's almost like this argument, whereas we should all agree. There are many people in Iowa that do not have high-quality service, and simply saying that satellite is good enough is ludicrous. It's just 
I mean, <laughs> it's so incredibly frustrating. And, and part of it is something that, that you know very well as uh, the person who does almost all of our mapping work. I mean, really all of it. This idea of using census blocks ignores the fact that in many of those census blocks, possibly all of them, there are people who do not have a view of the satellites. And so you're leaving hundreds of thousands of people behind, I would guess. But because their neighbors could get satellite service, they're included as well. So it's it's unprofessional. It's 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 a it's a real problem for living in the kind of country we want to live in, where everyone has access to these technologies. I just I can't believe we're freaking talking about satellite again. I can't believe that if Iowa does have amazing internet service, like this FCC map says, that I would be driving through it and every rest stop would advertise that they have wireless internet service. <laughs> right. Every single one. They're very excited about that in Iowa, apparently. And. I mean, I'll just I'll just stick up for Iowa for a second. Definitely some of the best rest stops in the entire country. I am from Minnesota. <laughs> so you won't say anything nice about Iowa. Iowa's a nice place. Um, so what's our what's our final topic today? We're gonna change gears a little bit. I want to know your opinion on some more local issues, Chris. So Madison, Wisconsin recently issued an RFP. Have you had a chance to look at it? Uh, just very briefly, but um, I've actually spent more time talking about it <laughs> because, I mean, the, the general idea of it is that uh, the city is looking to do uh, an approach similar to Huntsville, where the city would build a, um, a network uh, out uh, through the neighborhoods, but not do the drops, it sounds like. Um, and so just to, to refresh people... Huntsville uh, has a municipal electric utility. They built a fiber network out just like uh, Chattanooga had, but they didn't connect anyone to it. And that's a, that's a cost that could range from, um, you know, $500 to $1,200, $1,400, depending on the premise and the cost of connecting to it. Um, the ISPs that lease the network from the city, they do that final connection. And um, and that means that it's it's easier for them. In this case, largely Google is the the major ISP that's using it um, because they don't have to build this network through the city. Um, but they also like it because then they kind of own that customer. So you can think of it as it's like an open access highway system with private on and off ramps. And some people are really angry at that. Um, you know, some people who really believe in open access and lowering the barrier for multiple ISPs to compete are frustrated because they think Huntsville um, still has too much of a barrier to competition. Um, and then others would look at that and say, well, that's what Huntsville's utility wanted to do. And they still get a lot of other benefits out of it. They have this big network that they could use and they could always do drops later if they wanted to. Um, that might be more costly than having, including them in the original project, but that's what they wanted to do. Westminster took, uh, the other approach where they at Westminster actually owns the drops as well. And so there, um, the city is less reliant on the other ISPs and has a little bit more control. In this case, the city of Westminster, which is in Maryland, is working with Ting, a company that's active in three markets, soon to be five markets uh, around the country. And I, I think I prefer that model from a sense of I like to see the city owning all the way to the customer to make sure that the, the customer isn't stuck with um, limited choices, I think. What happens if the customer wants to switch in the Huntsville model? There's a couple of different things that could happen. One is that the the first ISP, like Google, is, is generally going to be the first ISP, could sell the drop to the new company. They could work that out uh, behind the scenes. Uh, the new company could run a second drop 
um, at their cost, and and that could be part of their business model. And then that first drop would just be sitting there. You know, that's I think this is part of the the inefficiency or the frustration that some people have, where they want to see lower switching costs uh, for those customers. Now, I think a city like Huntsville looks at it and says, look, we put together a deal that would allow us to work with Google. And and have an ISP. We brought another ISP to the market. It's led to more investment from our incumbents. It's doing everything that we want it to do, and we're pretty happy with it. So I wouldn't take that away from them. And so where it comes into Madison is different people are taking different lessons away from these examples. And some people, um, some people that I respect, uh, say one thing, and people that I respect totally disagree with them. So you know, from my point of view. I do think if I live there, I would like to see the city building the drops and having that extra layer of control. It costs it costs more up front, um, although I think it may end up being more cost effective over the life of the network. But being at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the thing that I respect more than anything else is the right for people to make their own decisions. And you and I have both read a lot about the history of the, the co-ops. And, and I do think we see that there was a lot of compromise and it still led to uh, the electric cooperatives bringing electricity to the entire country. And perhaps there would have been better ways of doing it, but they got the job done and there were some compromises along the way. And we live in a country of 330 million people. I don't always get what I want. So I'm I'm more willing for cities to take what I think might be a suboptimal approach, in part because I'm not convinced I'm always right, but also in part because I just respect the right for them to do things that I might not do myself. And speaking of cities doing things that are right for them. Did you hear about Louisville, Kentucky's uh, One Touch Make Ready, the decision made there? Yes. Yes, I did. And I, I think that's exciting that Louisville has the right to do the One Touch Make Ready, which will uh, lower the cost for a new network to get on the polls. Um, One Touch Make Ready is just uh, briefly, it's the um, um, it, it really simplifies the process of putting a new wire on a pole because previously, basically, everyone that was on the pole would have a chance to delay and sort of sandbag, um, which is to say stretch out the time period. So it might take six months, eight months, or a year for a new entity to get on all the poles they want. Now it'll be a much faster process with much more certainty for the timing because of this policy that will allow a single crew to go from pole to pole switching it rather than everyone who's on the pole sending their own crew. Um, it's also a big victory for the ability of cities to make common sense policies and and not to have to um, wait for the state to do it. Although I'll, I'll say that there was some state representatives in Massachusetts and when I talked about One Touch Make Ready and how important this would be and some of the people in the audience that have experience trying to solve these problems in rural Massachusetts were like nodding along and, um, you know, there was they were interested. So um, I think there's a lot more interest in this One Touch Make Ready. And I'm I'm excited because, frankly, it doesn't really do a lot to further our, our municipal um, ownership agenda or the co-op agenda, but it is a, a common sense approach to trying to um, knock down the power of the incumbents to stymie new competition. Yes, and it allows the city to make its own decisions about it, what goes on. Right, exactly. Anytime we see uh, we have the principle that is upheld there, it's it's wonderful because um, for, how, for how poll attachments work, the FCC has a set of rules and states are allowed to opt out of them and establish their own rules. Uh, and that's the way the framework works. It's not really clear that cities have any authority this or that, although cities do have the authority to maintain their own rights of way. The question has been, how far does that stretch? And we have a precedent here that cities have a pretty broad authority to manage the rights of way in the interests of the community. And I think that's a big victory. Yeah, it's very exciting. 
Okay, I think it's about time to wrap this up, Chris. No, I don't want to go. So if you have any stories about satellite and mobile internet access, please send them along to podcasts at muninetworks.org. Yes, we would love to collect any stories you have about why those just aren't good enough and uh, we need to do better, why we need to expect more for connecting all of rural America. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us, Chris. Thanks, Hannah, for sliding into the host chair and and uh, not punching me as I talk too much. Yes, you'll never get this chair back. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. That was Christopher and our research associate, Hannah Trosel, talking about rural internet access via mobile broadband and satellite, the recently released Madison, Wisconsin RFP, and the court decision that allows Louisville, Kentucky to enforce their one-touch make-ready ordinance. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcasts. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks again to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 271 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>